Hi, this is Tiffany Bova. Welcome to a reload of the What's Next podcast. This is one of my favorite episodes, and I always like to bring those ones back that had a huge impact, not only on myself, but I got a lot of feedback from listeners just like you. I hope you enjoy this week's reload of the What's Next podcast. I have the absolute pleasure today of welcoming Liz Weissman. She is a researcher and executive advisor who teaches leadership to executives around the world. She's the author of the New York Times bestseller, Multipliers, How the Best Leaders Make Everyone Smarter, Tapping the Genius Inside Our Schools, and Wall Street Journal bestseller, Rookie Smarts. She is the CEO of the Weisman Group, a leadership research and development firm headquartered in Silicon Valley. She's been listed on the Thinkers 50 ranking and named one of the top 10 leadership thinkers in the world. She's also a former executive at Oracle Corporation, where she worked over the course of 17 years as the vice president of Oracle University as the global leader for the Human Resource Development Group. Welcome, Liz, to my podcast. Well, Tiffany, I'm glad to be here talking about what's next. That sounds exciting. Yes. Well, I... I'll tell you a funny story, and you probably don't remember this, but I was in Hong Kong one day, maybe about a year ago-ish, and I'm running through the airport, and there's this end cap of the multipliers, and I'm like, stop, (laughs) take a picture. And I'm like, hey, I think I'm going to pick it up today, and I tagged you in a tweet. You replied back and said thanks. So it's really great to have you on, on What's Next today. Yeah, well, th- I do remember you doing that. And thank you. I thought you were going to say we somehow were together in Hong Kong a year ago, and I was going to have to claim complete ignorance of that. So. <laughs> nope, just your book. Just your book. <laughs> well, great. Well, listen, I'd like to start off uh, the podcast with something I like to call bullish and bearish. Nothing nothing painful uh, for those of the listeners that have heard this now over time. Hopefully they find it fun, but it's just a way to sort of loosen up the gas and, and have a little bit of a a quick fire round before we get into the meat of the conversation. So are you ready? I am. All right, hold on. Okay, the first one. Companies will begin bypassing the title manager. Bullish or bearish? Bullish. All right, all right. Millennials will start to prove they are better leaders than previous generations. Oh, I'm so bullish on this. I think the jury's out and returned on this. Oh, good, good. I can't wait to talk about it. And then the next one's a little fun for you. Bono would make a great boss. (laughs) (laughs) Bullish. (laughs) Big time bullish. I mean, I don't know if we get any work done. I know. I'm going to have to let you dig into why you say that since he's, you know, you, you've you've called him out before. So for people listening, they're like, what does Bono have to do with Liz Wiseman? I'm dying to know. Well, you know, I, I opened up the, the the book Multipliers with something he said, and he's actually quoting someone who, who said, he's speaking of these two British prime ministers from the 1800s. And he says, it's been said that after meeting with the great British prime minister, William Ewart Gladstone, you left feeling he was the smartest person in the world. But after meeting with his rival, Benjamin Disraeli, you left thinking you were the smartest person. And and Bono says this, and he's he's saying it, um, trying to describe George Clooney. So Time Magazine had asked him to write up a blurb about Clooney, who he was as an actor and an activist. And that's how he described Clooney, as just like someone 
you don't just hang out with him and think, man, George Clooney is awesome. You hang out with Clooney and you feel kind of awesome. Um, I think it was, um, oh, who was, uh, Joel Stein said that George Clooney makes you feel at home in your own house, <laughs> which I just loved. And, and I think it was this statement that captures what it's like to be around a great leader. You don't feel like they're amazing. Like, oh my gosh, Bono was such a rock star you feel just a little bit amazing yourself. So who wouldn't want Bono as a boss? <laughs> I agree. I think I'm, for sure it would be great company Bono, parties. No question. <laughs> for sure. For sure. I don't know that Bono wants to be my boss, but if he's up for the job, I'm All working. Right. Well, that's a call out. If Bono is listening to this podcast, Liz is happy to have you be her boss. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I'll work for free. <laughs> well, with that, you know, I think for those people who are listening and aren't familiar with multipliers, you know, maybe you could just give a quick little snippet on sort of how it came about and, and what you learned from the research, because I think that uh, there's just great nuggets in there I'd love to dig into. Well, I think how it came about really, I think, highlights the idea. It really started when I landed out of college into this small, rapidly growing software company, Oracle. But they were small at the time, but they hired this really interesting profile of people. And I later came to decode this. I asked the CFO and, and the CEO what it was. They, they hired for raw intelligence, achievement, orientation, and nice. And of course, they compromised on nice uh, <laughs> more than once. And, and so it was landing in this sea of really, really smart people. And I was just so almost smitten by how smart everyone was. And, you know, I'm really feeling kind of lucky to get to work with all these smart people. But what I noticed is that not everyone who was smart caused smarts, meaning that there were a lot of really smart people who they were so big in some ways, the other people had to play small, that they were really smart, but no one around them got to be smart. And I just was fascinated by why no one else gets to be smart around this really smart person, but a different kind of leader that I came to call a multiplier, where they were really smart, but other people got to be smart. Other people got to speak up and, and people around these multipliers were more, um, they were really more intelligent and more creative and more willing to take risks and be bold and, and be accountable. And, and honestly, I was just fascinated by this difference. This observation sort of uh, percolated and then kind of emerged over the years. And it wasn't until later when I began coaching executives that I saw that there were some leaders who really were smart, but shut down intelligence and others. And that's when I, I really vowed to, to research it and to understand it mostly because I wanted to understand it myself. Well, would you say that, you know, you've just said a couple of times that it, the, the sort of multiplier made everyone around them feel smarter, be smarter, but is it really because they allowed people to learn and fail and grow? And so that's the way that the multiplier effect happened, right? There's sort of this permission and ability as a quote unquote leader uh, to just let people find their way. Because I, I think over time, if you're constantly learning, you're constantly getting smarter, but you have to have management that's supportive of the fact that you're not always going to get it right. Mm. Well, there is a supportive element to it. And, and when I researched this, 
And, you know, and anyone who is listening to this and maybe everyone who's listening to it, I would encourage you to be thinking, uh, pretty much ignore anything I, I'm saying here and and be thinking about a leader that you worked with that was smart, but a diminisher to others and a leader that you worked with that was smart, but a multiplier to others. And And if you just think about what they do, some of this becomes very, very clear. But we found these multiplier leaders, they weren't just supportive, meaning Yes, they're empowering, they trust, they they listen, they ask good questions, they create safety for people to take risks, they're tolerant when people make mistakes in the name of learning and progress. But this is this is half the story. And I, I think this isn't even the interesting half of the story. What I found is this supportive behavior was was almost always coupled with really demanding behavior. So they they have a really hard edge to them too. My my publisher when I sent the first version of the manuscript in, she she one of the things she she said was, "Wow, these are not cupcakes and kisses kinds of leaders. That that they're um tough and exacting and demanding. They have really high expectations and they they challenge people." So it's it's not like, um, you know, Tiffany, you and I are both here in Northern California and, you know, it's not like it's this sort of hippie kind of feel good leadership of like, hey, you know what, be creative, try something out, you know, that's okay. They have high expectations, but they realize that it's a zigzag process to get to brilliant work. Um, and maybe in some ways they create safety, but the reason they create a safe environment is so they can stretch people and give people an opportunity to do really brilliant work. Well, and I think safety is a key word there because if as a employee, having your boss really be, as you said, kind of have a little bit of a hard edge, demanding high expectations and challenging, in, in many ways, they're asking them to be very uncomfortable most of the time. Oh, absolutely. You know, they're they're bosses that have become comfortable asking other people to be uncomfortable. I mean, let's go back to where we started. Think about think about Bono. Like one of the things I admire about him is he has moved out of just his sort of comfortable space as a like what does he call it an overindulged rock star to to be out doing work that involves, you know, social justice and activism. And part of that work he does, and I think why he's admired in, in these intellectual circles and in these um, in the public sector is he's willing to ask people to be uncomfortable. You know, heads of state and other celebrities just sort of drawing people out of their their comfort zone. Yeah, and I think he's also he's also kind of this tip of the spear, in my opinion. And I just you know mean leaders like him, where they're. Uh, seen for more than what they do, right? He's seen for more than being a rock star or, you know, my CEO, Mark Benioff, he's seen for more than being the CEO of Salesforce. Right? So you have this, these uh, leaders who sort of push the boundaries on other topics beyond business. And I feel like it's, it's this manifestation of this crisis of culture that's going on today. And so CEOs have to really lead people not just the business, right? And inspire people, not just look for shareholder value at the P&L level. You know, Tim, there's something really interesting in what you said. They see people for more than what they yes. just do. They see Bono for more than a rock star, Benioff for more than being um, 
just a CEO. And I think that's actually how this multiplier leader sees talent. They look at their team and they see people for more than just a job description. Like I think job descriptions are one of the evils inside of the corporate world because they they limit people, they box people. I think they were created trying to get people to fully embrace a role, like character job, you know, do everything in this job, but they end up being these invisible boxes, almost like, um, what are those like invisible fences that keep dogs in? And, and I think the best leaders, they look at people and they see not only people for their full range of strengths and skills, but I actually think they see people as truly whole people you know, bringing far more intelligence and creativity than their job um, requires and, and letting people roam a little bit. It's almost like a, a little bit of um, free range contribution, meaning, hey, don't be limited by, you know, these, these set of six bullet points that is your job. Like see a problem, solve a problem. Yeah. And so let's, let's flip the coin. So because uh, you've got a balance, right? You've got leaders who are just as we just described, and then you have the other side of the coin. Why don't you talk a little bit about the other sort of leadership leader that we have, uh, you know, today that that many people who are listening have to deal with? Well, you know, when I started researching this and studying this, I was drawn to these um, these diminishers, these tyrannical, narcissistic you know, bully types, these sort of like micromanaging, overbearing, kind of just brutes of bosses. And, and, you know, it was kind of fun, a little bit sick, you know, to do this research because you can imagine I am a magnet for bad boss <laughs> stories. Like, you know, sometimes I just get in an elevator and someone sees me and they're like, Liz, I got to tell you about <laughs> my boss. And I know there's, there's not a multiplier story coming. And, and so I've, I've kind of heard them all. Like I've heard bad boss stories that honestly make me want to cry. Um, and I, I've heard people just, and I've seen people sob telling me about these oppressive bosses. And, and I studied them, like, what is it that these, these leaders are doing that's causing other people to shut down? Um, but I'll tell you what, this is not what was interesting at all. I mean, it's fascinating, but what was most interesting is is learning that most of the diminishing that's happening in our workplaces, and this extends to our communities and to our schools, that most of the diminishing that's happening is coming from the accidental diminisher. These are not oppressive, tyrannical bully bosses. These are really well-meaning people, like good people trying to be good bosses, but yet having a diminishing effect or footprint that's just as big as some of the big bullies. So that was fascinating. Like, how is it that we end up shutting down other people while having the very best of intentions? Yeah, and I'd say that that accidental diminisher, uh, when I first started sort of digging into your work, I found that really interesting. I actually, uh, I saw myself in the accidental diminisher uh, accidentally. <laughs> that that. <laughs> As I was an individual contributor and then got moved up to management ranks, it didn't mean I knew how to manage. And it most definitely didn't mean I knew how to lead. And so 
I had to sort of fumble my way through because I didn't always have a manager who would take, or a leader, right? My boss that would take the time to say, hey, here are some things you might want to do better. Or, hey, maybe you should try this. Or, hey, let's look in the mirror and see the kinds of results you're getting. They weren't taking time with me to coach me through this sort of, I was an individual contributor, sort of struggling through this accidental uh, diminisher because it was really it really was, as you just said, coming from a good place, but I didn't realize the downstream effect of, you know, always on and, you know, the pace setter and I'm, you know, all the things that you say around this accidental um, diminisher until somebody, then I started to realize that people around me were doing better and I started to back off. And and then I really saw this, that kind of multiplier, right? Where, and when, as soon as I started to let go and trust that, things were going to happen and they were fully capable or if they weren't we would we would coach the same way someone coached me it was uh so groundbreaking for me as a quote unquote leader uh, it, it was really fascinating to watch myself personally go through it oh you know it is and that's a transition that there's a lot of leaders who haven't gone through they haven't gotten to that epiphany of wow if i give it to somebody else to do and i really give it to them they're going to do it potentially better than me. Like, you know, at first when we delegate, we're like, they're going to screw it up. Like I can see a screw up about to happen. And so we hold back or we, we intervene or, ooh, they're going to do it, but it's going to be different than, than the way I would do it. And, you know, often we're not comfortable with that. But really, it is a magical moment when you start to see, wow, the people on my team, they not only do it differently, it's better in so many cases and when I can really learn to let go and put somebody else in charge and then keep them in charge when the crisis hits, you know, or when you just hit a road bump, you realize like, this is where you get that multiplier effect is now instead of being the contributor, you're helping everyone else contribute at their max. And, you know, a lot of leaders are stuck thinking, how do I get 10% better myself, 10% more productive, uh, like what happens when you get everyone on your team 10% more productive, better, more capable? It's like, man, in some ways you could sit around in your office and read novels all day long and you're getting way more done. Yeah. And, I, and I'd say that I, I, I think um, many people who are going to be listening to this will say, oh, I absolutely listen. You know, I work for a multiplier or there's multiplier leaders in my organization and I can call them out right away. But many people... I'm guessing, and then I'd love to know from your research, are more likely working for either an accidental diminisher or a full-fledged diminisher, right? where they're not accidentally doing it at all. It's just, that's their style. And so if they're underneath a diminisher, how do they navigate? How do they, how do they navigate their, themselves either to share with that person that, hey, listen, I feel like you know X, Y, and Z, or how do they work their way to find champions in the business so that they can redirect themselves or how do they apply, you know, what's, what's the, what's the options? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I, I spent, um, a year, about a year and a half ago, I spent a good number of months really digging into this to understand why, because I realized, oh, I don't know, maybe eight years into this journey for me that the world hadn't changed. <laughs> you know, we, we, the needle had moved, but we still have way too many diminishers inside of our organizations. And what do people do? I think the first thing is realize 
it's not about you. I, I see so many people personalize. This is where like the sobbing and the tears come in. Like that this person is trying to hold you down or doesn't respect you. And often it's that they just haven't learned how to lead yet. I think we tend to personalize it way too early. And then second, in some ways, it's not about them either, that most of the diminishing isn't on purpose. It's not like evil genius, mwahaha, like how do I suppress all of the competition around me? How do I, I keep my underlings as underlings? You know, it's not coming from crazy control freaks that again, most of it is done with the best of intention. And so sometimes we, we take just intuitively good action when we realize that that diminishing boss is probably an accidental diminisher. Like what might they be doing with the very best of intentions? And when we understand that, we, we can work with it. Um, so there's a number of, of ways to do this. The first set, Tiffany, I, I called the fences against the dark arts of diminishing leaders. And, and these are, are, they're really defensive strategies when you really do have someone who feels like they're oppressing you and your contribution. It's how do you stop that cycle of diminishing and decline? Um, some of my favorite strategies, um, let me pick a couple. One, um, is retreat and regroup often. And we've all seen this two headstrong people trying to go head to head. And like one of them is the boss and you kind of know who's going to win that standoff. It's never wise to go head to head, um, with someone like that. And, um, I think about something, someone, an executive at Apple had taught me, I had this really interesting coaching assignment at Apple. I had done a bunch of coaching at Apple. And one of the assignments I was given, sort of my remit, was to help get an executive Steve ready. So you can imagine what that entailed. That meant getting someone ready to go in and be kind of in that inner circle and to, to meet with Steve and to talk with him. And um, and also to get some uh, that same person, Tim, Tim Cook, ready, which was a little bit of a different um, assignment. But when I went in to study, like, what does it look like people who do really well um, presenting to Steve and interfacing to Steve. I learned a couple of really good, interesting strategies. One is what I call retreat and regroup. This one executive, she said, when it became clear to her that Steve had become um, frustrated, annoyed, or disagreed, she realized there was little chance of prevailing in a debate or an argument. So what she would do is she would stop and listen to what he had to say, listen to his arguments, what he was refuting, what he was frustrated about. And then she would say, Steve, you made some good points here. Would it be okay if I take a couple days to think about some of these um, things you've said and come back to you in a couple days with um, a modified plan? And she said, inevitably, Steve would, would agree to this. And while those two days transpired, he would unentrench. She would take his ideas, but not just um, capitulate, not just say, okay, well, Steve will do what you say. She would take the best of her thinking, this input she'd received from Steve, and she would go back two days later, represent her ideas, and it was almost always affirmed and they moved forward. So sometimes we have to remember, you know, instead of trying to win the battle, just stay, just stay in the game. Yeah. And it's almost, it, you know, I've had Roger Martin on, it's almost that opposable mind, right? That thinking of it's not your way or their way. It's the combination of the two. 
And I think that mm -hmm. that's super powerful uh, because that's that, that's that constant learning, right? So as a leader, you have to almost be willing to say, every day I'm going to learn something. I'm either going to learn it from upstream, right down or downstream up. But if you're, if you're not open to it, uh, and I don't mean being wishy-washy in that when I say learning, right? But just um, different thinking. And so I almost want to say that this kind of diversity of thinking styles has a lot of impact on an ability for a leader to be effective, right? Because you've got introverts and extroverts. You've got that, you know, very overpowering personality and then a more quiet personality. And then, you know what I'm saying? So if you take someone in that example, like you take a Steve Jobs and then you take someone who's on the leadership team, it doesn't mean that they're that big of a personality, but they're clearly deserve to be on the leadership team. And so you have two very different thinking styles. So the very quick, I'm going to dig my heels in versus the let me step back for two days and be more methodical and come back with a combination of the two gives everyone a minute to take a beat, but that's their thinking style. And sometimes in leaders, right, it doesn't work because you have a, think a leader who is really fast on their feet. And then you have someone who works for them who is not as fast on their feet. So they get frustrated. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it, it allows everyone to get into that place where they can do their best thinking. And I think we often forget that bosses are people too. And bosses, you know, most don't want to just operate in this general management mode that most senior executives want to be contributors to, and they want their ideas to be heard and listened to. You know, I noticed this when people go in to present to Larry Ellison, that those who always fared well in that were those who didn't just choose to argue with him, but those who could really listen. It was one of the things I loved about working for Larry Ellison is he is absolutely brilliant. He's absolutely as brilliant as everyone says he is. And it's a, and it would be unwise not to listen. Like, what can he teach me in this conversation? I, I have been schooled by Larry in that, you know, he's taught me things about my own business and the function that I was running. And rather than try to prove to him, he was wrong. I'm like, there's a lot he can, he can teach me. So retreating and regrouping is one. Um, let me share maybe one that's in some ways the exact opposite of that, or instead of sort of a, um, more of a, um, is it a, not Tai Tai Chi, I'm forgetting, um, Taekwondo kind of <laughs> do, do, Ditsu, like, um, reverse the energy flow. It's one that's very assertive. I call it assert your capability. And, you know, I, I've had, um, I have four kids and I have not forgotten the toddler years, although my youngest is, is now 14. But I remember very vividly what would happen when I would try to do for my three-year-old, what the three-year-old could do for herself. <laughs> and, you know, every parent knows this. You try to do something, you try to put on the coat of a three-year-old or do something for them. They just, they, they assert their ability and they say like, no, daddy, I do it myself. Like, no, mommy, I can do it. And they don't give you a lecture about what a terrible mom you are. They don't tell you you're a micromanager and that you feel like oppressed by them. They just kind of put a stiff arm out, so to speak, and say, hey, I got this. And it's funny how when we enter into the workplace, we forget to stand up for ourselves this way. And when someone comes in trying to micromanage, we find that micromanaging is, is the number one way people end up diminishing and accidentally diminishing as well as, as, as people tend to rescue when people are struggling. Sometimes when we're struggling and a boss comes in trying to swoop, swoop in and rescue, we just need to say, I'm okay, I can do it. 
Like I will get this across the finish line. Um, I remember once I was, I was a new manager and I'm talking to one of my employees. Her name was Carla. And she was telling me about how this, this program we were running was in jeopardy and that we might not be able to run it. It was a mission critical program. And, you know, we didn't have enough server space to install the databases we needed. And this thing was next week and we didn't have the server space. And she was telling me about this. And so I literally, I, I grabbed the phone and I pick it up and I'm dialing the data center because I know the guys in the data center and they like owe me some. And I'm literally dialing their number about to talk to them to ask for them for server space. And Carla says, Liz, you can put down the phone. And I'm thinking, what? She goes, I'll get this, I'll get this solved. I'll, I'll talk to the guys in the data center. I'm meeting with them tomorrow. Like I'll get this problem solved. And I'm thinking, then what on earth are you telling me about it for? And she said, I just wanted you to know what I was working on. So that's an example of her asserting her capability. Sometimes we just need to tell people, I've got it. I own it. I will get this done. And then of course you better get it, get it done. So just two of many strategies on, on how to deal with overbearing bosses. Um, but the best strategies really are, are multiplier strategies. They're not kind of stiff arm, keep people at bay. It's how do I work in a way that brings out the very best in my boss? Because it absolutely reverses the cycle of diminishing. And I think people will, um, you know, not quit companies, but they'll quit bosses. Mm. Oh yeah. You know, and this is part of the problem. You know, we, we know this, that people tend to join companies, but then they leave their bosses and often um, they think that's a good solution for a diminishing boss is to quit. But the problem is, well, a lot of people sort of quit and stay, um, which is a big problem for everyone, but they quit and they end up going, they quit a boss and then they go get a new job. And what do you think they find at the new job? Another diminishing boss. And so if you're going to quit a diminishing boss, make sure that you don't just go shop for a new job, but shop for a new boss. Um, I put in the appendix of the new edition of multipliers. I put in there a shopping guide for, you know, here are some telltale signs that this person might be a diminisher and here are some signs that they might have multiplier tendencies. But certainly if anyone is listening to this that is coming out of college and you're new to the workforce, do not make the mistake so many people make by thinking it's about what job you take or even what company you go work for. You know, be very thoughtful about who you go and work for because that person, um, and particularly your first boss, is going to establish the waterline for your contribution and how big you play and how you feel about your professional life. So look for a good boss. I couldn't agree more. I mean, I think in my career, I've had a balance. I've had both. I've had um, multipliers. I've had accidental diminishers and I've had full-fledged diminishers. I've had, I've had maybe I guess one of all three uh, along the way. Uh, and in various stages in my career, so based on what you just said, right, this is now the first time where generationally we have five generations working, you know, in mm. a company. And so one of my first bullish and bearish was millennials. And you said, absolutely bullish. 
Uh, and so, you know, as people listening to this uh, podcast and sort of our last couple of minutes together, you know, what's what's next for someone who is one, you know, not happy in the current situation or in their current, uh, you know, boss leader uh, arrangement? What's what's sort of the one one piece of advice you'd give them? So where they're working for a diminisher. My one piece of advice would be help your boss to be a good leader. I think we often assume that there's this big gap between employee and manager. And I think it's a a gap that's come out of my generation that somehow you're like uh, promoted and hoisted into this kind of leadership and you're above everyone else. And and really the, the model of leadership that we're using today is much more fluid where that boss employee relationship changes. Like you're a leader in the two o'clock meeting, but then you go into the three o'clock meeting and you need to put your follower hat on. But, you know, I think we, we sometimes expect way too much of our leaders. We expect them to be mind readers. We expect them to know what we're doing. And there's a whole set of skills that one can use to make yourself easy to use and easy to lead. I'll give you maybe one of the most practical things is, you know, if you had an amazing multiplier boss, he would notice your native genius. He would, you know, the thing you do easily and freely, and he would see it and spotlight it and challenge it and give you roles, you know, to use that. Now, a lot of us don't have bosses like that. But that doesn't mean we have to wait for for him or to her to come along and discover this, that we could go to our bosses and say, hey, here's what I'm good at. Like for me, I'm really good at synthesizing, taking in a lot of complexity. Like I go from can of worms to bullet points, not only quickly, but sort of well, and I enjoy it. And so I could go to my would-be boss. So Bono, I think, is the boss that we've decided. I could go to Bono and say, you know, this is what I'm really good at, and you could use me here or you could use me there because it recognizes that your boss doesn't necessarily have time to see it, but you can give someone a user's guide to you. And it's remarkable how much more fully utilized you'll be just doing that one little thing. Well, that was fantastic. Those three are great. I just want to say, I so appreciate your time today and spending it with with me as well as everybody who listens in to what's next. And so I'd love to know what's next for you, Liz. And, and so everyone can keep in touch with your work and, and continue down this path of becoming uh, better leaders as well as, you know, better, better producers. Mm, I'll tell you what's next for me is, you know, I have spent, oh, the last decade for sure. And even beyond more than that, helping leaders develop better leadership skills. And what I'm spending more of my time on now is what are the skills that employees need to be easily led and to be able to contribute at really high levels? I think there's, for every leadership skill, there's sort of a complementary um, contributor skill. And so I'm doing some really interesting research, actually looking at the question of what if we didn't train leaders? What if we only trained employees how to step up and contribute? Um, what might happen. So that is one. And I'm also on a personal level working on a very fun piece of work, trying to improve the civility in our um, conversations. And how do we, how do we return to civil discourse? 
Well, I can't wait to see what you do next, Liz. So once again, thank you so much for spending time with me today on the What's Next podcast. And I'll look forward to seeing you again soon. Okay, Tiffany, thank you. What a great conversation with Liz Wiseman. I love when people give really actionable advice that both the listeners of What's Next can gain insights from, but more importantly, myself. You know, I think it's really important we constantly strive, whether we're in a leadership position, whether we strive to be a leader someday, or whether we just want to be a better employee and a better colleague. I am a firm believer in always being a student of what you do every day. So Liz gave some great tidbits and actions we can all take on Monday morning uh, to be better employees and colleagues and leaders. But a couple things that really stood out to me, you know, how do we become multipliers for those around us? How do we calm being diminishers? And then how do we navigate working for people who may not see our full potential? You know, the only thing I can give you from this is listen to this podcast a couple of times, go ahead and read the book, The Multiplier. It will really give you a really strong context and feel for what are the things you can do to be better every day and bring your best self. But more importantly, love, love what you do, get to do every day, similar to what I get to do. So I thank you for listening to the What's Next podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, leave a review, share with your friends, and I look forward to having you join me again next time. Have a great day. 